what I want to say today is that modern man, modern man in his relationship to his social order, has a social order which is formed from an intoxicating idea. And this intoxicant that man has swallowed in the modern world has made him so drunk that on the one hand, uh, he cannot recognize until it's too late that he is downing something which is harmful to him. And then secondly, once he's downed it and experiences certain difficulties, he's too blind to recognize the solution to his problems. The intoxication causes this. In trying to explain exactly what it is that I mean, there are three points then that I want to make about intoxication and modern man's relationship to intoxication uh, in his social ideas. The first is going to be to discuss briefly the nature of the intoxicant that man has taken, that, as I say, has formed this social order of his. The second will be to discuss in some detail the harm that the ingestion of this intoxicant has caused him and the blindness that it also leads him into. And then thirdly, the position of the sober uh, during all of this intoxication. All right, taking each of these points one after the other, I hope then that we can have a completed picture that will then provide a framework for the next two speakers to, as I say, fill in. All right, now, as far as the first aspect of this discussion today is concerned, the nature of the intoxicant that man has ingested, as I mentioned, this intoxicant is an idea. This intoxicant is an idea which, for the purposes of our lecture today, I am simply going to summarize as the idea that man is king. That man is king over the order in which he lives and over himself. That by being king over the order in which he lives and over himself, man is in control of his destiny, man has become free, and man has become dignified. This idea that man is king, with all of the complications or all of the consequences that it involves, is not an idea of the last ten years. It is not an idea of the Democratic Party. It is not an idea of something that has somehow or other popped up unexpectedly only in this century. It is an idea which has a duration uh, that is now perhaps uh, 600 years old. Uh, it's an idea that has been growing since the 1300s. And it has to be understood in this long-term context because failure to understand it in this long-term context is disastrous. This is an idea, this view that man is king of the world around him and of himself, that every secular calendar uh, marks. The secular calendar is filled with the feast days of this idea. Uh, one simply has to read uh, in taking calendars from every country around the globe, every western country around the globe, one can see the progress of this idea marked as days which are celebrated in many lands uh, around the West. Everything that we breathe, everything practically that we eat, uh, everything that we see around us proclaims this idea. So it is there and it must be dealt with. In trying to discuss this idea, and in continuing with this context of the intoxicant as a manner of dealing with it, I want to suggest that the stupor that uh, has been caused by it has developed in three steps. And in discussing this, I beg again uh, your recognition of the fact that I am trying to summarize uh, a number of ideas which have developed over a long period of time, and in summarizing them, I am inevitably simplifying them to a degree 
which the people uh, who I will be briefly mentioning at times in the course of this might not feel justified. But it's inevitable in trying to summarize it in this fashion. I'm going to suggest that the stupor involved with this idea developed in three steps. The first step we can identify with the, the Renaissance. And in fact, we can identify it, uh, to use, again, intoxication terms, as a form of social drinking. In a way, a social drink, a drink at a cocktail party or whatever, is pleasant. It can sometimes, and often, in fact, uh, free the speech so that one becomes more eloquent on ideas which are good and solid ideas, but which perhaps have not been bandied about because certain inhibitions hold one back. And I would suggest that the Renaissance, to a certain degree, uh, has got this kind of element in it, and hence this term, social drinking, to discuss the ideas originating in it. But nevertheless, sometimes someone says, even in social drinking, things which can be misconstrued because the ebullience with which they are expressed, uh, well, can be misconstrued. And again, I would suggest that this happened during this stage. Because one finds during the Renaissance, during the 13 and 14 and 1500s, Christian men, Catholic men, are seized with the vision of the grandeur to which the Catholic idea of man called man, and in being seized with this grandeur, perhaps discussing the grandeur in a way which can be twisted. Perhaps the most famous indication of this vision of grandeur, the grandeur of man, has been that which has been expressed in a small essay by the Italian Pico della Mirandola, uh, a small essay called An Oration on the Dignity of Man, where this phrase, the dignity of man, then becomes a kind of stock phrase that enters into the vocabulary of the West. And one finds in the discussion that is elaborated here uh, this understanding that somehow or other, each individual human man, which, of course, a Christian uh, inspired by uh, what man has had done for him, to him or for him by Christ uh, can easily develop, one sees the view that each individual man is in himself what is commonly called in the Renaissance a microcosm. Each individual man, each small unit, somehow or other, because of its mixture of the material and the spiritual, because of the mission that God has obviously given to him, emphasized by Scripture, because of what one can simply see man has done in uh, man's history, each individual human being is called upon in his little microscopic speck to somehow or other branch out, fill out, reflect, uh, incorporate in, in, in himself all of the glories of the entire universe, all of the glories of the cosmos. And Pico della Mirandola, in this oration, talks using all of these words that we've become familiar with since this time about man as a creative being, about man who has a man being a creature unlike any other creature or any other thing placed in the world that can grow, about man having in him a kind of unfixed character which, by adding to his culture, by seeking to understand the things around him, uh, he can build upon and build upon to this degree of reaching out and grasping and embracing the entire universe. Now, as I said, uh, there is an aspect to this view which is something that one can see emphasized by and stimulated by the whole, the whole 
grandeur that Christianity has given to each individual human man. But on the other hand, there is an aspect to it which, when taken by other people, can be, can be transformed into a view of each individ- individual human man being so unfixed and so open to growth and so creative in a, an ambiguous and a potentially abusive way that the growth and the creativity that is open to him is perhaps a growth in creativity which can be taken out from underneath the control and the guidance of God. Now, I would suggest that although Pico della Mirandola uh, might not have liked that view, that in the second stage of the development of this stupor, a stage which I would, uh, akin, I would uh, describe as being akin to a kind of drunkenness by this time, a stage which has been reached by the time we get to uh, the movement known as the Enlightenment, by the time we reach the 16 and 1700s, a stage which perhaps has as its historical outgrowths uh, the, the, the sort of double pole of the Industrial Revolution and the French Revolution, a social and economic force on the one hand, a political and social force on the other. But in the second stage of the stupor, the drunken stage, that many people in the Western world began to realize, or began to think at least, that in order for man to truly develop this creativity, to truly grow out in order that each individual could reflect in his microscopic way the glories of the entire universe, that this growth and this creativity demanded a total autonomy. That any kind of limitation uh, by the laws of a Christian God, of a God who created the universe, uh, and then guided it providentially through until the end of time, that any kind of guidance by laws in this fashion was something which was harmful, which was limiting, which was not quite able to be reconciled with the vision of man growing towards perfection. What is the, what is the, the, the symbol of this in a way? Well, all of these things I'll be mentioning more about a little later on. But again, there is a kind of twofold symbolism uh, dealing on the one hand with this industrial revolution that transformed the world uh, economically and the political movement of the French Revolution on the other. There's kind, of, there's kind of expressions that symbolize both. On the one hand, uh, the exaggeration of the way in which human beings could understand and deal with the world around them and with themselves exclusively by the use of mathematical and scientific knowledge and without having to rely upon uh, revelation or, for that matter, ultimately even philosophical knowledge. And then on the other, the view that politically man could deal with his social order by simply relying on the agreement and the guidance of uh, the complex of individuals that form that order. Uh, Hence the terms democracy, uh, meaning democracy in a, a sense in which the population is sovereign, is king over its social order. Science and math as the exclusive means for determining how to deal with one's life around him uh, uh, indicates the breaking of man's mind from the guidance of revelation. Popular sovereignty and democracy, on the other, indicates the breaking of man's political order from the guidance of God and the guidance of, of the other world uh, in, any, in any real sense. Now, that brings us down to the third stage. We've gone through a kind of social drinking where man has been exaggerated, man's abilities have been exaggerated. 
We've gone through a drunkenness where that exaggeration of man's abilities uh, perhaps was seen to require an autonomy. And then we go into a third stage of drinking, which can only be characterized as delirium tremens. Now, this develops, this kind of drinking, of course, develops all the while the other two are going on, just as we all know people at a cocktail party who rush for the table and quickly douse themselves before anyone else has had a chance to really have the, the, the liquid take effect. But nevertheless, it's been really in the late 19th and in this century that this delirium tremens has taken hold of this whole world view. One might say, in a way, that it, it reached its apex uh, and has been, has been fully justified in this country only since 1968, right, in the kind of postmodern age, in which many people now have reached the conclusion, and I think logically have reached the conclusion, that the autonomy, the, the freeing of man from rules of above, which is necessary for him to be creative and to reflect the entire universe in his small microscopic speck, that this, that this autonomy requires as a logical consequence autonomy from everything. In other words, that a fight against rules cannot be limited to a fight simply against God, especially after Christianity has taken every kind of rule, ranging from philosophical rules to aesthetic rules, and has combined it into its own worldview and demonstrated how they can be useful for man to reach God. It's in this third stage of drinking that people realize that the fight against God as a, as a guide to man's, to man's uh, mission in this world is a fight against everything. All right, now, what do we have then in this cocktail that forms the intoxicant that man ingests for his social order around him? Well, I would suggest at the present time that two types of drunks are around us. That the two types of drunks have an uneasy truce, but that these two types of drunks uh, are combined always against us. There are still around us people only in the second stage of intoxication. Those who believe still that through democracy and popular sovereignty and guidance of the people on the one hand and by science and math on the other, that we are really reaching for an order in the universe which is going to open everything up to us and make man become everything man was meant to be. They're still around. Then there are, however, many, many people uh, who are in the third stage, in the delirium tremens stage, who no longer care whether there's an order or not. All right? It's the autonomy in itself which has become their end. Right? The end in the sense of improving man, as would be accepted by uh, anyone in the Enlightenment, the end in the sense of improving man for these people is gone. It's the freedom in their sense of the word that really counts. And I would suggest that logic, insofar as this whole world view as it has developed is concerned, that the logic is on their side. But nevertheless, for the purpose of completing this cocktail, it's important that you realize that these two types of drunks exist simultaneously in our society and they set the rules for the rest of us. All right, now, moving on from that first aspect of my discussion, the nature of the intoxicant that we have swallowed over the past 600 years, let's discuss the second. And that involves two parts. That involves first looking at the harm which has been caused by this intoxicant, and then secondly, the blindness that has been caused by it. 
As far as the harm uh, is concerned, this harm is the easiest thing in the world to identify. One, one wonders, and I will address that question of, uh, later on, one wonders how it can be missed because it is so obvious. The harm is clear, and the harm can be described in a threefold fashion. The harm is that as a result of having swallowed this cocktail, mankind has become enslaved. And he's become enslaved in three fashions, all right, which I would like to enumerate here. The first one is that he has become enslaved to the irrational. Mankind, as a result of adopting this view that I just discussed in its three stages of development, mankind has become enslaved to the irrational. This should be clear from anyone who's reached this last stage, the delirium tremens stage. Because by reaching this stage... By carrying the fight of the individual man against all rules and guiding his, himself and his social order, one inevitably conducts the fight to the point of being angered by the rules of logic, being angered by the whole philosophical tradition, being angered by the whole fact that there can be such things as objective rules uh, in aesthetics about beauty being angered that there are rules about absolutely anything, even grammar, as I'm sure you're all aware, uh, after 1968 with what has happened in the, in, in the academic world in this country and in the rest of the uh, Western world. In fact, the, the sign in an academic way of people who have reached this last stage, uh, the sign of them insofar as they are philosophers is that they are anti-philosophers. Their whole aspect of life, their whole mission in life is designed to demonstrate that there can be no such thing as truth that can be philosophically determined. In fact, I would argue that insofar as these people get control of the social order, they are anti-politicians. Politicians being, uh, if you want to give it a, a proper term, someone who takes the world around and tries to deal possibly deal with the possible and arrange something so that human beings can live in the world around them, these people assume there are no rules. And therefore, a politician cannot make sense of uh, a world that has no rules. For these people, for these people, all of the words that were the, the, the core words, the symbol words, the words of battle for the whole movement of man becoming king, all of the words like freedom, and dignity, and justice, these words are meaningless. They cannot be determined. The minute that you finally give a definition to them, the individual stands up and riles against, rails against these words because it is someone else's definition and he ought not to be subjected to them. In fact, it is no longer even considered by people who have reached this stage of intoxication it is no longer even considered essential to demonstrate any logical connection between thoughts or logical connections between mo one moment of their life and the next or any kind of logic at all, logic itself, of course, being a, a nasty word. When one deals with an argument about what one ought to do personally in life or what one ought to do in the social order as a whole in order to guide it, when one argues with these people, it's quite clear that they are helpless in debate. And I would simply suggest, uh, as a famous debate to illustrate this, the debate between uh, Bertrand Russell and Father Copleston uh, at one given point about the Second World War, about the Second World War and uh, whether or not what the, what the Nazis did 
uh, to, the, to uh, various peoples around Europe and mass murders was wrong. Well, I mean, so, so, so upset was Russell to have to ultimately use the word wrong that he had to admit that it was impossible to say that anything was really wrong and it was simply his own personal feeling and that he would prevent people from doing this simply out of his own personal feelings. This is helplessness in debate. Hence, in trying to argue with anybody who has reached this stage of delirium tremens, and I mean arguing with them not just personally, but in the social order as a whole to construct a polity, a civil order, uh, discussions with them either become shouting matches, since no one can talk with one another, since there is no ultimate conclusion to be reached about anything, or one sees the enemy fade away with a sort of sick smile on their face into an Eastern mysticism which argues that, um, after all, uh, we, cannot, we cannot really, we cannot really even presume that our words, that our words uh, ought to make any, any sense to one another. It's either a shouting match on the one hand or a sort of, a sort of uh, yoga dance on the other. All right, one hears constantly, I remember when I came back from Europe, in the time that I had been gone, uh, people, people had started using the expression when you spoke with them, you've got to hear me. I hear you. I hear, they don't hear me. I don't hear that. I hear them, but they don't hear me because hearing me would presume that what I had to say was something that had to be taken into consideration in order to reach a conclusion in my argument. All right. If they kept saying, in fact, I had reached the point in arguing with these people that if anyone said something like that to me once more, I was going to punch them. In which case, they would feel me, and that might have some kind of effect. All right, now, the, the conclusion I want to make in this first discussion of the enslavement of man to the irrational is the fact that in this kind of world, created with a view that the individual stands above any kind of definition about anything, it is inevitably the case that the loudest and the most ambitious must foist their will upon everybody else. How they justify it is something about which more anon. All right, let's move to the second form of enslavement. And this is enslavement to pure force. And I mean enslavement to force in the sense that mankind, intoxicated by this view, becomes the helpless tool of the material world, material forces. There is one way, which I'm sure you can all recognize right from the very beginning, which I'm not going to spend much time talking about, and that is that when one develops this view of the free, autonomous man in such a fashion as I've indicated, uh, it's quite clear that the free, autonomous man, uh, more often than not, uses his freedom in a purely material way, to get more for himself, to do more of the things that um, other people would be embarrassed by him doing uh, publicly or whatever. All right, I don't even want to talk about that, the way in which freedom can be utilized uh, to discuss pure material desires and their satisfaction in that fashion. What I want to talk about is the way in which the whole of Western society, as a result of this view, has become enslaved to the machine. Uh, the Pope has been talking about this uh, in, in several documents. This has been a constant theme uh, in Catholic circles over the past couple of hundred years. Let's just take one aspect of this whole thing. Mankind's autonomy was supposed to be somehow or other reflected by the fact that scientific knowledge and mathematical knowledge and all of the rules and laws which mathemat mathematicians have always provided for people to work with 
that this kind of knowledge would be sufficient for us to deal with the world around us, more than sufficient, as we'll see in a minute. Hence, people who adopted this view, starting in the 1600s, people who adopted this view went rushing around looking everywhere that they could to see examples of the way in which the world around them functioned like a machine. They went looking for rules for this and rules for that and formulae for this and formulae for that. And they, were, they, they had the possibilities symbolized for them when, when Newton comes up with this, this law of gravity. Here you get a nice little rule. It can be expressed mathematically very simply. And all of the, all of the planets follow this rule. Right? All these people went looking around saying, look how scientifically and mathematically we can deal with everything around us. Forget about all of this, this other stuff. Revelation and guidance uh, and that score. Now I would suggest, since this is a, a false view to start off with, but I would suggest, and I can prove this historically, I think, that in the effort to look for the rules, the mathematical and scientific rules, people lost their scientific objectivity. And in searching for them, it became a rebel, a kind of magical rebel. All right? They, the enterprise was not that of calm people sitting in the laboratory or in the library poring over books, the chief obstacle in their life being dust from the books choking them to death. That's not the problem at all. All right? That's not the, the symbol at all. The symbol is really that you have to keep in your mind people looking for scientific and mathematical rules seized like a magician would be seized with the possibility of using these, magical, these mathematical and scientific rules as a kind of magic wand to strike here and there to transform symbolically in a way uh, uh, lead into gold. All right? I could demonstrate this for you in a, no, in a number of ways, but the time is simply not available. Now, continuing upon this, it seems to me that what tended to happen was mankind got so obsessed with finding the rules for everything, the machine-like rules, the mathematical rules, the scientific rules, that he lost track of what he was doing. And he started applying it to himself, which was inevitable. One sees already in the 1700s people reveling in the fact that man, each individual man, is a machine. In fact, there's a famous book which is written in the 1700s, Man the Machine. All right? One finds all of these arguments uh, which people, some of my students who think, uh, think that they're better educated than the others uh, but aren't, some of my students think have been some kind of uh, amazing discovery of the past 20 years or so. One finds all of these arguments about thought being nothing other than, than um, secreted by the liver or, or, or whatever because it's nothing but a product of the human body. One finds statements about human passions being no different than the Nile overflowing its banks. All kinds of statements like this to indicate that man is a machine and that's all there is to it. So what is the result of this? The result is that the whole enterprise which was started to give man control over the universe has become meaningless. The whole enterprise has become simply machine for machine's sake. Find the rules. Show that everything's the machine. Make everything, everything into a machine. Leap up and down if everything can be paved over. Leap up and down if you can find machine-like forms even in, even, even in nature, even in love, even in anything that you can think of. 
You might know that there is a, there's even artistic movements which so revel in the machine that they, that they find enormous beauty in gears and, 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 and motors and steam engines and even, even the, the odd colors that, that, that pop out over New Jersey when you come up the turnpike. All right? So, reveling in the machine and a reveling, therefore, in the fact that mankind has no freedom because he's a machine part. Reveling in the fact that mankind has no control over the universe because he's simply a machine part. I would suggest to you that, that uh, this kind of revel that has taken place in human society uh, is the sort of thing that the popes in the 19th century in documents like the Syllabus of Errors were complaining about and were being laughed off as enemies of human freedom and enemies of human progress in complaining about. One finds statements in the Syllabus of Errors where Pius IX, for example, attacks the view, he attacks the view that Everything is simply a product of material forces. And to think that this kind of a, do a document which attacked the view that everything is uh, simply a product of material forces should have been held up to the ridicule of the world as a document which opposed the progress of humankind. One, one sees just how far the revel has gone if that has taken hold of man. The machine for machine's sake the lust for the machine and the lust for mankind to be nothing but a machine has grabbed hold of the world and has ended man's freedom. The third aspect of enslavement is simply enslavement full stop. All right, we've had enslavement to the irrational. Man has been enslaved to the material world. Now I simply want to finish this section in a way by saying that mankind has been enslaved, period. He's been enslaved full stop. And let's just talk about this briefly in two senses. Right? In one sense, he has been enslaved by this theory of modern democracy. He is enslaved by this theory. At its best, he's enslaved by this theory. Because at its best, at its best, and I'm talking about modern democracy at the present day with its defenders at the present day, uh, at the best... Remember that these people do not care about the ultimate questions of truth, beauty, justice. They don't care. What is important to them is the autonomous decision by the people as a whole. There is no truth and no justice to be strived at. There is only what the people as a whole say is truth and beauty and is justice. And what does this mean ultimately? This means ultimately an appeal to force. There is an argument in the Syllabus of Errors. One of the statements of Pius IX in the Syllabus of Errors is an attack on the theory of popular sovereignty, of popular control, which stands behind modern theories of democracy. There is one statement in the Syllabus in which this view of democracy is attacked not because the papacy was anti-people, but because, why does it say in the statement? It says, it is wrong to claim that human societies must be ruled by appeals to the force of number. All right? If one has truth, that's one thing. If one has number and head counts that lead to who cares where, so long as the numbers are what predominates, what one is saying is that truth is nothing and force must predominate. It happens... If it happens that 99% of the population is the one that's dictating it, it is nevertheless still force. And this is what the church has always been opposed to. 
Secondly, I would argue that the practice of modern democracy has led to enslavement. Now, what do I mean by this? What I mean by it is the fact that the, the theorists of modern democracy have tended to argue that everything would work out perfectly with it, partly because of the fact that they have swallowed this machine-like view of society. Either people work like machines, and therefore the machinery all rumbles together, and one need not worry about its malfunctioning, or one can find, in the form of papers, constitutions, documents, uh, a kind of key to the machinery which will make it function perfectly as much as the law of gravity will make us fall down and hit our heads when we leap off of the Empire State Building. All right? There is a view which assumes that either people function perfectly and nothing can go wrong, or constitutional guarantees can be discovered to make sure that everything functions perfectly and nothing, doesn't, nothing goes wrong. Now, what does this mean in practice? This does not account for human freedom. This does not account for the whole question of sin. This assumes, this whole view assumes that human beings can be restrained, and for that matter, that the devil can be restrained, by the American Constitution. All right, the American Constitution is such a powerful document that human sin must cede to it. All right, or for that matter, in countries that do not worry about uh, things like this, such as the First French Republic, that it's simply the case that the whole people rumbling together uh, will simply function so perfectly that something like sin doesn't even have to be worried about throwing the whole machinery off. What would I suggest has happened here? The same I suggested with the discussion of what happens with the irrational beforehand. That the loudest and the most ambitious have always been able to twist this machinery of modern democracy in order to claim that their views must predominate, and they have added to this the hypocrisy of claiming, while they have foisted their loud and ambitious views upon the rest of the population, that they are nevertheless ruling in the name of the people. This has happened again and again and again and again, even in the best of democracies, which is our own, much less the worst, which uh, exists in the East. Now, just to end this discussion about the harm that has been caused, let me suggest that this cocktail that we have ingested, that has intoxicated modern man, has been proven to be more than a cocktail. It's been proven to be a Mickey. All right? It's been proven to be a whole bottle of country stump juice. All right? It has knocked out our entire guts. And as a result of knocking out our entire guts, it has made us irrational. It has dehumanized society. It has made society hypocritical and manipulative. Insofar as there is such a thing as freedom and dignity and human control over his situation, it's the old story of the emperor's new clothes. It's the emperor's freedom. It's the emperor's dignity. It's the emperor's control over the whole universe. It is a joke. It can only survive, this whole view can only survive as a kind of plaything. As a, kind of, uh, as a kind of excrescence on the surface of a continuing Christian society. In a continuing Christian society, you can tolerate a few cranks like this who hold this view because they can spread their views relying on the fact that the bulk of the population has Christian views and Christian, Christian institutions which will stop it 
from reaching its logical conclusions. I remember on one occasion when I was in high school seeing a film about the Second World War, and at the end of the film, which obviously was, was, obviously was going to be an anti-Nazi an anti, um, film, obviously, uh, at the end of the film there was a view of the whole of, the whole of, of, of Berlin, bombed out. And the announcer correctly uh, announced, while looking over this whole thing, if you want the testimony of what happened as a result of this, this order, look around you. All right, look at the bombed buildings. Well, I would suggest if you want a testimony of the freedom, dignity, and control over the universe that has existed as a result of the worldview that we have swallowed, look around you. Look around you and see what is taken for freedom. Look around you and see what's taken for dignity. Look around you and see how people revel in the fact of a human being being a machine and not really being in control of the whole situation. This is not what anyone who first promoted this view, or for that, matter, for that matter, anyone who reached the drunken stage, or I would think for that matter, even those who reached the final stage, wanted. This is not what Pico della Mirandola ever could have dreamed of because he was a Christian. This is no sense what a man like Voltaire would have ever dreamed that. He would have been revolted by what he sees around us now, what he would see around us now. The whole of this view has been an utter failure, and its testimony starts here and moves all through the entire Western world. All right, now the second part of this second aspect to the discussion is the question of the blindness that's been caused by the ingestion of this, this, this Mickey, this country stump juice, this cocktail that has intoxicated us. And the blindness caused ought to be clear to everybody. Every expedient, Every explanation, every kind of fixing of the machinery has been tried in order to deal with the problems caused by this worldview, except the one of shutting the window to keep the cold out that I mentioned earlier. What is the obvious view that would shut this problem out? The obvious view is the correct view, which is recognizing that man is not the king over himself Man is not the king of the universe, that God is the king of the universe, that Christ is the king of the universe. Uh, the obvious expedient would be that of tossing out this worldview and recognizing again this phrase, Beatus populus quius dominus Deus est. Blessed is the people whose Lord is God. Uh, whose Lord, uh, for that matter, from our, from our standpoint in the new dispensation, is Christ. There is only possible freedom and dignity, and I would suggest there is only possible man's proper control over the universe under this heading, under the ultimate acceptance of God's rule, of Christ's rule. Indeed, it's so basic that this is essential to any kind of freedom and dignity and man's control over the universe. It's so basic uh, because we're the ones who, who first emphasize these words. People did not, were not concerned about the freedom of the individual man in any large sense in the ancient world. People were not concerned about the dignity of the individual man uh, in much of the ancient world, much less, I'm talking now about the, the, West, the ancient world in the West, much less the rest of the world. These are our words. This, this is our emphasis. We're the ones who caused, who caused the interest in these questions in the first place. And what these people have done with this other view is they have taken our, our glory, 
our creation of freedom and dignity, the Catholic creation of freedom and dignity, they have claimed it for their own, they have elevated everything in their own sense, and they have pulled the rug underneath it, out from underneath it. All right? And once they have pulled the rug from out, uh, out from underneath it, they have allowed the possibility for this, for this creature who has been raised to the stars by Christ to drop down much lower than existed before Christ came into the world. As I mentioned once before, what Catholics have done is they have taken everything good that has existed in the ancient world, chained it to the chariot of Christ, dragging mankind up to glory, so that anyone who questions that center foundation stone of Christ drags every benefit that has existed in the Western world down with it. Now, how do we know that these benefits that Christ has given us uh, exist? Well, we know it by faith to a certain degree. But I don't want to talk about that because I would simply be uh, repeating to you the things that we all know. We know the glory that Christ has promised for us. I want to talk just a little bit about the fact that you don't need faith even to realize many of the benefits that Christianity has produced and the way in which it can promote freedom and dignity and the control over the universe. Many people who have not even been Christians or Catholics have recognized nevertheless that they, that they, the only way, the only way for, for Western man to maintain what he has achieved is by maintaining the union with that kind of a worldview that Catholicism promotes. Let me just run down a few of these uh, so that you can get what I, uh, I mean into some kind of perspective. I'm not arguing that with God or with Christ as the king of the universe, that mankind down below recognizing this fact does everything right. What I am going to be arguing is simply that he's put on the right track. He makes a mess of it. He oftentimes does not get to his destination. But in contrast to the earlier view, the cocktail, the intoxicant, the more one logically and healthily thinks about the world view that Catholicism promotes, the more one must be ashamed by things which attack freedom, attack dignity, attack control over the universe in their proper sense. The more one thinks logically about the view promoted by the other side of the picture, the more one is reduced to the state of delirium tremens. By thinking properly, by thinking logically in the Catholic framework with God at the center of the universe, one sees the exact opposite happen than the harm that I mentioned before. One sees that rather than being enslaved to the irrational, mankind is freed from the irrational. Why? Because Catholicism takes truth seriously. It takes universal truth seriously. It has been the only force in the world that has been able to make large masses of the population take the whole question of universal truth seriously. By criticizing and attacking and even in times persecuting its enemies, it has demonstrated that it takes its enemies' views seriously. Because otherwise you would not waste your time with them. It has, by taking truth seriously, opened the debate. Whereas I would insist that the other side, inevitably, by denying the validity of truth, closes the debate. Secondly, instead of enslaving man to the material world, it frees man from the material world. Not only in the obvious sense, by aiming man and his freedom towards his spiritual perfection, but in rejecting this deterministic, 
machine-like, purely scientific, purely mathematical view of how we can understand everything around us that would even reduce the discussion of the sublime uh, aspects of human life about love or anything else to formulae. It has given rise to such an obvious freedom from the material world that I, I would suggest can even be compared by simply, by simply taking something such as, as Notre Dame or Chartres or, uh, for that matter, uh, the Baroque churches of, of the Mediterranean world and comparing it with the concrete neo-Stalinist architecture that one finds touted as uh, the highest, uh, the highest um, uh, sort of openness to mankind's sensibilities that one sees sprouted about all of the major cities of the Western world at the present day. And finally, it frees man from political force, unlike the other view which tends to enslave him to it. Why? Because it admits that no matter what the population wants, there is truth, there is beauty, there is justice that stands above it, and that no popular will, whatever it may be, no 99% of the population, whatever it may want, can stand against the one true man, the one just man, the one man with the proper sense of beauty. It protects man from political force because it recognizes that man can sin. It protects man from political force in that it recognizes that human freedom and human sin make no political system that mankind has ever set up totally free from the possibility of abuse so that human beings, Catholic human beings, can always be on the watch to be able to change, to alter, to respect the differences caused by history to respect the differences caused by different nations, geniuses, or different nations' needs. That Catholicism frees man from political force by recognizing that human beings are creatures of individual characteristics that live in history and do things and change and therefore have to be dealt with in a constantly altered fashion underneath the general heading of obedience to God's will. I would suggest that this is the clear meaning of the word Catholic, that, with, that underneath a universal rubric, the Catholic respects the individuality of the different nations uh, and their individual abilities to do wrong, which makes them not expect that a machine or any kind of a system can protect them entirely. Now that brings me to the final aspect of my discussion today, and that is the question of the position of the sober in all of this. The intoxicant that we have ingested the intoxicant that has caused this threefold harm of enslavement to the irrational, the material, and to political force. The intoxicant that has blinded people to the true way out, which is, uh, which is the acceptance of God as king of the universe and all that that entails. That intoxicant is a horrendous lie. This intoxicant that we have ingested is a lie. Reminds me of the famous, there's a famous passage in Othello where Iago... Uh, Iago, who has announced himself, who has announced himself uh, from the very beginning as a demonic force by claiming that unlike God, who is what he is, uh, Iago is not what he appears to be. Uh, Iago in Othello, Iago in Othello, there after spreading horrible scandals about Desdemona uh, to Othello, uh, Iago is attacked by Othello, who says, "If you are not a demon, if you are not a demon, I will kill you." And Yago, in this chilling passage, which has been much commented, says, I bleed, but I don't die. All right? In other words, he is a demon. And I would suggest it is the same thing with this intoxicant. 
This intoxicant can bleed somewhat, but it does not die. This horrendous lie, which has butchered more people, this assumption that man is his own king, has been responsible for the butchery of people down through the ages. People complain that Rome has butchered and persecuted people. Rome, during the Counter-Reformation, put to death one man in Rome itself for heresy. It was Giordano Bruno. And the only reason Rome did was because the police in England and Venice didn't get hold of him. Um, Rome puts to get one man, and it is the crime of the ages. This second view has butchered millions in the search of its city of the sun, in the search of its new Atlantis, in the search of its, of its transformation of the world, and yet it does not die. And I would suggest the reason it does not die is that it is demonic. The view is supported by powers which are beyond us. And therefore, first and foremost, the position of the sober, therefore, is to recognize that they are dealing with something which, to a large degree, can only be cast out by fasting and by prayer. Since it is a demonic idea that is attacking us, that demon is in us ourselves. So that even the sober have, in a way, been past the Mickey as well. Or even the sober are drunk to a certain extent. We sometimes speak with the same language that the proponents of the other view, uh, the other view does. Even at the risk of, 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 of dawdling for another couple of minutes, I, I have to dwell on this point. I was just at a conference a couple of weeks ago, uh, and there were many participants at the, con uh, at the conference who were on our side of the picture. Uh, and would agree, would agree, uh, in theory, about everything that I have been speaking in favor of uh, at the present moment. And then we all wanted to sing. We all wanted to sing. All right, we'd been having a good time. We all wanted to sing. The only songs people knew were songs which spread words which contradicted exactly what we were claiming to be our view in our theories. Because the only songs that we hear, the, the only poems that we know, the only artworks that we see in front of us, everything that we have in front of us, uh, front of us speaks the language of the other side. All right? And we don't recognize this. All right? Attacking, attacking the other view, we spread it in, in our own ways. All right? Woe to those people who don't understand this. Because in utilizing all of the phrases of the other side without recognizing them with their proper definitions, we do the work of a demon. All right? we, do, we, we slander Desdemona as well. We even feel guilty because we use the same language and have so been put upon by the other side. We even feel guilty about attacking them. All right, we might recognize that our view, we might say our view is correct, but we nevertheless, rather than assuming that we are the only ones who promote freedom and dignity and proper control of the universe, we nevertheless assume that they're the ones who really have the freedom and the human dignity and the individual rights and arguments for them on their side, and we cringe and feel a little bit guilty and giggle in corners about having to attack them. We have the same lack of sense of the ages an age-old struggle that we are fighting and trying to deal with this view which has sprung up over 600 years, and rather than fighting the whole view, starting from its social drinking stage, as I indicated earlier, we fight surface manifestations, a problem of two years ago, a political struggle from this year's campaign, and never plot it into the long-term battle, which becomes so frustrating for those people who want to demonstrate that it is a 600-year struggle which is going to take perhaps centuries to be able to deal with. 
We are engaged in an enormous battle, the sober are. And this battle is a battle now on every single level of culture. It's a battle on the very structure of our language level. And anyone who does not recognize that is doomed to do the work of the other side. In conclusion, uh, for what I've had to say today, I just want to mention the fact that the kind of virtues that are required by the sober in trying to take the cocktail, the intoxicant, out of the hands of modern man, the kind of virtues that are required are enormous. Because the kind of virtues required are virtues that require recognizing at every step of the day one's work, one's phrases, one's actions, which are somehow or other contributing to the victory of the other view, the view that man is king. One requires the virtues of a confessor. I'm a coward myself, but nevertheless, in certain moments, I can picture perhaps simply because of, of, of not recognizing what's going on, I could picture myself being a martyr, but a confessor all day long, every day, for 60 or 70 years of one's life, is a chore, and people inevitably give up the battle, and therefore aid the other side. This is an extremely difficult thing that therefore the sober have to do, in recognizing their responsibilities. But at least they have one major consolation. Most things in life are hard. Most things in life are very hard. Uh, most decisions in life are very hard. I can be reduced, I can be reduced to a helpless mass uh, at the thought of choosing in a Chinese restaurant between fried dumplings or steamed shrimp dumplings. Uh, I can be reduced to tears uh, by the thought of what dessert uh, to pick in my favorite cafe. Um, when it comes to questions of career or marriage or anything of this sort, I'd be the first one to argue that the bottle of country stump juice and in large quantities be passed down the road in order to douse myself, in order to make the final decision. But with this, with this question of the social order, it's not as hard as all that. It's hard to carry it through. It's hard to carry it through, but the decision, the basic decision that one has to make is as simple as simple can be. And that basic decision uh, is due to the fact that one has two choices in front of him. That either, either one accepts Christ as the king of a free society that respects man's, man's mind and man's uh, spirit and man's proper control of the world that has been given to him, or man is going to be a ruler and he's going to be ruler of the kingdom of the dead. Thank you.